from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Caroline Kitchener. It's Friday, February 7th. Today, what the acquittal means for the presidency. And why do the Oscars still have gendered categories? So since the president was acquitted, what have we been hearing from him? You know, he is a president entirely unshackled and unleashed. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. We've all been through a lot together, and uh, we probably deserve that hand for all of us because uh, it's been a very unfair situation. Uh, I invited... He held forth in the East Room of the White House, which is one of the most regal settings of American power in our history, and unleashed what amounted to a festivus of grievances. Had I not fired James Comey, who was a disaster, by the way, uh, it's possible I wouldn't even be standing here right now. We caught him in the act. He attacked Nancy Pelosi and suggested... Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. She doesn't pray. When she said... I pray for the president. I pray for the president. She doesn't pray. Pelosi, in fact, is a devout Catholic. She may pray, but she prays for the opposite. But I doubt she prays at all. He attacked Mitt Romney. And then you have some that used religion. And suggested he used faith as a crutch in explaining his decision to convict the president. They never used it before. But, you know, it's a failed presidential candidate, so things can happen when you fail so badly running for president. Romney, in fact, uh, has been a leader, a bishop in his church, and is one of the most faithful men or women in public service in our country. We first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. We then went through the Mueller report. He went on, though. He laid out his grievances about the FBI officials, about the witch hunt, saying he had done nothing wrong. The only thing that was wrong was his family for having to go through this ordeal. Uh, We've been going through this now for over three years. He called the Democrats evil. It was evil. It was corrupt. It was dirty cops. It was leakers and liars. For having tried to hold him accountable for his actions in Ukraine. A phony, rotten deal by some very evil and sick people. And it was a remarkable display, and I think an indication of now that the president has escaped accountability for these actions in the impeachment proceedings, he sees himself as in a way above the law, and he's going to do and say whatever he pleases on his march to re-election in November. So now that all of this is done... What happens now for the Trump presidency? I mean, for the rest of his term, how are you expecting it to be different than it might have been? Well, in a way, uh, this is like a turbocharge for President Trump because he survived this gauntlet, this impeachment proceeding, without having to be removed from office. And therefore, he's waking up feeling emboldened and empowered and feels a conviction that everything he does is right. He is at the strongest point politically today that he's been in some time. The Gallup poll has his approval rating at 49%, which is sending shivers through the spines of Democrats uh, around the country. 
There are good feelings in the country about the economy, which continues to hum along. I am thrilled to report to you tonight that our economy is the best it has ever been. He had a pretty powerful economic message in his State of the Union, even though a lot of it was exaggerated and he made claims that are not true. Jobs are booming. Incomes are soaring. Poverty is plummeting. Crime is falling. Confidence is surging. It was a selling argument for re-election. And our country is thriving and highly respected again. And so we can expect, I think, the president to continue to to sound these themes and to seek retaliation against all of those he felt uh, have wronged him in this impeachment process. With this acquittal, how is that likely to change the office of the presidency more broadly? It's a good question because the evidence about Trump's activity in Ukraine is there's no dispute about what he did. The evidence is clear. The testimony was clear. Trump himself has admitted on camera that he wanted the Ukrainian government to do an investigation into his political opponent. And in fact, he called on the Chinese government to do the same. So what he did is clear. What happened is the Republicans in the Senate made a political calculation about not removing him from office for it, that what he did doesn't amount to an impeachable offense. And, you know, I I spent some time the last few days interviewing historians, and they said this is a major watershed moment in our nation's history because the way the founders set up our government, set up our constitution, was to punish and remove presidents who do exactly what Donald Trump has been proven to have done with Ukraine. This is a system of checks and balances. And and what's happened is the legislative branch uh, under Republican control in the Senate is no longer holding the president accountable. They're becoming an instrument to propel his power and perpetuate his power. And that's concerning to uh, historians. It's concerning to legal experts. And it certainly would set a precedent, I would imagine, for future presidents who will say, look, I If Trump got away with this, I can get away with it, too. And it is just an expansion of that sort of executive power, which is troubling to those who study the framers and the Constitution. Do you think, I mean, with a a different president, you know, 10 years, 20 years from now, our future executive branch is likely to think back to this moment and say, I can do this. It's okay. I'm not going to get in trouble. You know, they could. And we may not even have to look to future presidents for that. President Trump has another 10 months, 11 months in office. Uh, He may have another four years beyond that. And there's no telling what he might try to do going forward because he's escaped accountability this time. In the Russia investigation, you know, the Mueller team documented all of these examples, four really proven examples where the president sought to obstruct justice but did not charge him or indict him because he's a sitting president and there are Justice Department guidelines about that. Well, the very next day after Robert Mueller testified in Congress about this, Trump picked up the phone and called the Ukrainian president asking for the favor, the political favor. So he, the conclusion he drew from the Mueller investigation and his lack of any legal punishment in that regard was that he can get away with what he wants to do. He's the president, and if he does it, so be it. And the Republicans in, on, on Capitol Hill are there to support and protect him. Phil, can you talk us through how the president's own lawyers argued that the Senate basically doesn't have the power to, to check the president? One of the most striking moments in the president's defense came when one of his lawyers, Alan Dershowitz, a noted criminal lawyer, you've seen him on TV for years, uh, came to the floor of the Senate and advanced an argument that a lot of legal experts said was dubious. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. 
He said, if the president does something that will help his reelection, it therefore is in the best interest of the country. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, he cannot be held or rather be impeached for that action. That cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. And so that's a blanket excuse for the president to do what he did with Ukraine, but obviously anything else that the president deems to be in the interest of his reelection. That is an argument that Dershowitz had to kind of walk back a little bit uh, in, in some comments he made the next day. And he got a lot of heat from legal scholars who said that's just a completely baloney argument with no constitutional grounding. But it is indicative, I think, of how President Trump himself views his power and views his authority as the president and commander in chief. Did we see a lot of senators latching on to that argument? A few did, um, actually, uh, Republican senators, of course, but a few parroted the Dershowitz line as a way of defending the president and saying, basically, he's president. He can do whatever he wants for his reelection because getting him reelected is in the best interest of our country. What about the way that the impeachment trial played out in the Senate, the fact that there were no new documents, that there were no witnesses? Is that likely also to set its own kind of precedent for the way that impeachment is handled in the future? Certainly. We've only had an impeachment trial three times in our history. And so there's not really a, a blueprint or a protocol for how to go about doing this. And and the Senate leaders, along with uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, had to kind of change and, and, and adapt the rules as they went along to figure out how this would work. And the Democrats say this was a complete sham trial, that Mitch McConnell designed it from the get-go to move quickly, to get to a very fast acquittal, to turn the page, to save Trump, and to move on with the legislative business, not to delve into the details, not to really scrutinize the evidence. The most surprising thing, I think, watching this all unfold the last few weeks is that John Bolton came forward publicly, or at least in the manuscript of his book, which leaked out through the media, with new information, right? He's a firsthand witness to what the president wanted done in Ukraine. He offered to testify before the Senate, or at least indicated he would if, if asked. Here's somebody who could have come forward to provide a new account that would have provided new evidence to this case, and there was no interest among the Republican majority in the Senate to hear what he had to say. I don't believe the testimony is necessary. The House managers have a burden of proof, a burden of proof to prove their case. They have fallen woefully short. We now have allegations from Mr. Bolton. I think they would have more credibility if the allegations came from someone else. There is no new information, in my opinion, based on what John Bolton has known. But today, in an effort to generate interest in a book, they have selectively released information that, to me, doesn't go beyond what we have seen in the 17 witnesses who've already testified. Only two Republican senators voted to allow witnesses, Mitt Romney and, and Susan Collins of Maine. To what extent is the Senate giving up the power that they have to oversee the president, to provide any kind of check on the president. Can you give us a sense of the power that's been given up with this move? You know, they've they've been giving up power to this president for three years now, and in part because Republicans throughout the party live in fear of him. He has such an intensity of support within the Republican base and approval rating among Republicans of 80 to 90 percent. And he follows these things very closely and vows to retaliate and shows that he can punish 
people uh, if they betray him or cross him. Just ask former Senator Jeff Flake or former Senator Bob Corker. So there's that fear factor in the Senate. And and what they've done to adapt to that is is not to stand up to him, not to ever say he's wrong. And in turn, they're getting some of their agenda through, right? They're getting tax cuts passed. They're getting a lot of conservative justices uh, installed onto the federal judiciary. They feel like Mitch McConnell certainly feels like this is an opportunity to advance the conservative agenda, but they just need to placate Trump and play to Trump and, and keep him calm. But in so doing, they're giving up their power of accountability, and it's certainly not the way that the framers and the founders imagined our, our system of government working in a democracy. Phil Rocker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. His new book, written with Carol Lenig, is called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. It's out in stores now. So in 2017, Asia Kate Dillon, who is a non-binary actor on Showtime's Billions, wrote a letter to the Emmys essentially saying, like, why do we have gender categories? You know, like, I don't identify in the gender binary, so why do we still have these kind of, you know, actor and actress categories? And the Academy got back to me right away and said, well, actually, the rules have always stated that anyone can enter either category for any reason. And the Academy is certainly not going to, you know, ask for a birth certificate or do any kind of check. Asia responded essentially saying, like, they were very responsive. And you know what? I'm going to pick the actor category because actor is more, you know, genderless, if you will. Actor is a non-gendered, non-sexed word from the late 1500s that applied to anyone of any anatomical sex or gender identity. So given the two categories, actor and actress, actor is a non-gendered, non-sexed word that I used. So that's what I chose. So what happens then? Does this conversation stop? Oh, no, not at all. It starts with Asia. You know, there's non-binary actors that have already been asking this question. People that, you know, have identified outside of the gender binary that have been asking this question. But it hits like mainstream. MTV's move to create a genderless award for acting will mean something different to everyone. But to me, it indicates that acting is about the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that doesn't need to be separated into two different categories. And then, you know, there's actors asking this question, producers, directors, like, where do they fit in, too? So then that sparks a conversation that kind of doesn't ever go away for good reason. My name is Sarah Hashemi, and I'm an animator on the video team. So knowing that when we divide these categories into male and female, we are excluding a whole population of people, why do we still do it that way? Why did that happen in the first place? Yeah, so if you look at the amount of awards that are you can win if categories are broken up, that means that there's an option for, you know, two people to win in acting. A female-identifying person will win. That means that more women will win. But if you look at, like, the directing category, for instance, for the Oscars, you'll see that it's been non-gendered forever for the past 90-ish years and only one woman has ever won in the best directing category. Only one. And the winner is, well, the time has come. Catherine Bigelow. Only five women have ever been nominated in Oscars history. 
There have been five bobs that have won. So knowing that, are people worried that if we get rid of the gendered category, then maybe the entire Oscar starts to look like Best Director? That is the biggest fear and part of the reason why people are holding on to it. And I think even, like, the non-binary actors we talk to believe that, like, we do need a separation. There needs to be more categories, not less categories. Mm -hmm. And what that means is maybe just changing, you know, the structure of, of what the words are in these categories. I think we could go a little bit further in making that language inclusive, going female or non-binary actor, male or non-binary actor. Kylie Sparks, a non-binary actor, recommended that we just add words. You know, just add words to the end of, of acting categories. It's six words. Let's just do it. It's six words. But it opens up a world of inclusion. They will feel more free, and instead of being put into these boxes that they don't necessarily fit into, and be able to say, yes, I was in this movie. I am getting the recognition that I deserve for my work because I worked very hard on it, and I would like to be considered in this category that reflects who I am as a person. So we talked to a Jacob Tobiah, who is an actor, a voice actor on Shira and the Princesses of Power, who talked a lot about, you know, adding categories that were not about gender, but that wouldn't eliminate the amount of awards that could win. I think we look at the Grammys as a model, right? That we have best debut performance by an actor in a drama, right? And use actor as a gender neutral term. Let's add debut categories or, you know, how far you are in this career or in this genre, you know, just adding more categories that aren't specific to gender. The competition would be based in something that actually impacts your ability to do your job, right? Like, as an actor, what genitals you have have nothing to do, um, or how you identify your gender have nothing to do with your skill and ability. Like, any person of any gender can act and can perform beautifully. But whether or not you've been in a show before versus you're, like, a seasoned vet and have been in, like, seven shows and this is your seventh, um, I think that could be a really interesting way to break it down instead. And especially, I'm sure, if you add categories like debut or early in their career, that is a kind of category that is probably going to lift up female-identifying people and non-binary folks. For sure. I mean, if you look at the DGAs, they have a category that's essentially like the best in theatrical achievement in film. And they have one that's kind of like the new upcoming category, like first feature film. And in the the first category in the best film period or the best theatrical film it was all men and only one person of color. And then if you look at in the upcoming, it's majority women and majority people of color. What we need to really work on is changing the voting memberships. We talked with April Rain, who created Oscar So White. And one of the things that she advocates a lot for is changing the voting block, starting there. So that we have more non-binary folks, more queer folks, more people from the LGBT plus community, more women in the actual membership um, so that we know that the actual voting process is going to be more inclusive than it is now. The people who get to make a lot of these decisions are the voting blocks. And the Oscars came up with the initiative that in 2020 they would double their numbers of women and double their numbers of people of color and hit it for people of color, not for women, this round but that that needs to start. That needs to be like where we kind of start the structural change. And hopefully that will lead to more recognition of traditionally underrepresented communities. I guess it's, it's interesting to me because I think about Hollywood and L.A. as 
super liberal, you know, super aware of stuff like this. So I guess it's just something I would expect people to be very receptive of. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think that that would, is the general assumption too, especially because of how Hollywood likes to put themselves into like political movements and kind of like say that they're agents of change, you know? And I do think that there are people that are interested in that change. I think the question is really, how do we do that? And who do we talk to about it? And I think who we talk to are the exact people you should be talking to, you know, non-binary actors who are in these positions. Sarah Hashemi is an animator for The Post. The 92nd Academy Awards will be held on Sunday night. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Caroline Kitchener. Martine Powers will be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.